The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. I am so excited to be launching the first episode of the Garden Question Podcast. Let me introduce you to our guests today. Mike and Judy Cunningham are the founders of Country Gardens Farm. They have been teaching people how to grow, cook, and preserve good organic food for over 10 years. Mike's plant love began in high school when his father helped him build a greenhouse in the backyard. After a degree in horticulture and a few years as a store manager with Pike Nurseries, he began Southern Perennial Growers and Country Garden Nursery. In 2011, the focus changed to growing organic vegetables to sell directly to the public through a CSA subscription model. Country Gardens Farm grows a wide assortment of year-round vegetables on three acres of the third-generation family farm by using greenhouses in the winter. Mike, with lots of input from Judy, authored his book, Seven Steps to an Organic Vegetable Garden. You will hear Mike's openness in sharing his successful methods for growing good food in our inaugural episode number one of the Garden Question podcast. Our conversation with Mike after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Mike, what is an organic vegetable garden? A lot of people think an organic garden is the lack of spraying or the lack of using chemicals. But what I would say is an organic garden is a holistic approach to growing vegetables or ornamentals for that matter, where you look at the health of the plant, the health of the soil, weather, timing, all that. So what you're trying to do is grow the healthiest plant you can grow without trying to rescue it from insects or diseases or poor nutrition with chemicals. You're trying to increase your nutrient density? Yeah, kind of like your body is giving the plant all the things that it needs to be healthy. If you're exercising regular, like all of us are supposed to be doing, getting enough sleep at night and eating fruits and vegetables and all of our good nutritious food every day, you're going to get sick less often. And then when you catch something or get sick, you get over it quicker. Plants are the same way. So if you plant your um, broccoli at the right time of the year, you are providing it with all the nutrients that that plant needs. Then you're getting plenty of sunlight and it's getting the right amount of water. You're just making that plant as healthy as it can be within your power to do that. Then you're going to have less insects and diseases. It's going to produce nutrient-dense bumper crop for you. There are going to be problems. Things are going to come along. Possibility of insects attacking or disease attacking or the weather turns bad. We have a late frost or an early drought or something like that. So it's as far as we can as gardeners to provide the right environment for a healthy plant is what goes a long ways in organic gardening. Then you don't have to spray as much with organic remedies. Even though you won't be using chemicals in organic garden, there are 
organic remedies that we can use sometimes, but making the plant the healthiest it can be is the priority. How would you start your organic garden? What's the first step? Well, we always look at the soil first. That's the basics for everything. I like to say that the soil is the stomach of the plant. That is where the plant absorbs its water, gets a lot of its nutrition. It's where it interacts with all the microorganisms in the soil. It's the stomach of the plant because just like in our own digestive system, we have to have microorganisms, uh, good enzymes, good gut flora in order for us to digest our food well. The soil needs that same, not the exact same microbes, but they need the right microbes in the soil to digest the minerals in the soil. The plant by itself can't just take that up unless they're in a form that's available to the plant. We look at the soil first. I live in Georgia. I got good old red clay here where I'm in the Piedmont area, Georgia. That's a little obstacle to overcome. Almost any kind of soil type that you might have, where it be sandy or clay or loam, and you want to improve it, the answer to that is usually adding compost, organic matter. Anything that was once living that is now decaying is going to add all the right biology back to the soil. It's also going to add right tilth and structure to the soil to get aeration into the soil so that the plant can take up oxygen and water and everything that it needs there. Look for the soil first, then it's location where we're putting the plant. You really can't grow a vegetable garden in heavy shade. We like to say if it produces a root or a fruit, then full sun is what you need. But if you have some shade and you want to still grow vegetables, then leafy greens is what you need to grow. You can produce a leaf a lot easier with lower sunlight than you can something like a tomato or carrot because it just takes more energy to produce that. We're looking at location, what soil we have, and, and improving that soil. And that's that's probably the biggest step in the right direction on starting an organic garden. The sun helps with production. Oh, yeah. All plants are little solar collectors. You can't have photosynthesis without sunlight or without sunlight. You can provide it with artificial light, but it's a whole lot better if we can provide it with sunlight. That's the key to life is that uh, solar energy that the plant absorbs and produces sugars within the plants. It makes the whole system work. When I think of organisms in the soil, I think, well, that's not good. That's a bad thing. But tell us why that is good. Sometimes we have this idea that bacteria is bad, fungus is bad, and they are harmful bacteria and fungi. But without them, life on this planet wouldn't exist. We have to have all those things within our bodies. We have to have microorganisms so that we can survive. We can't digest our food without that. And a plant cannot be healthy and sustainable if it doesn't have those microorganisms in the soil. And the thing about it is there's just a whole lot more good microbes in the soil than there are harmful microbes. When you have a proliferation of good microbial life in the soil, you're going to suppress the harmful microbes in the soil. But if you try to sterilize the soil and take away everything, it's usually the harmful microorganisms that come back in that hurt the plant. You want a proliferation of good microbes and you want to feed them. You want to create an environment where they can grow and flourish, meaning that you till the soil less, that you keep something green and growing on the soil all the time. So there's always roots in the soil that are pumping root exudates from the plant down into the soil for the microbes to feed on. You're always wanting to encourage and to enhance the environment for the microbes to live. And if you do that, then you'll have more good than you have bad. What is a root exudate? 
Root exudate would be sugars that the plant produces. So in photosynthesis, plants gathering sunlight, this photosynthesis is going on, which manufactures sugars. I used to think that the plant was manufacturing all those sugars for its own growth. But what they found in probably the last 20 years or so, just how much of that is being excreted or pushed out the roots of the plant in order to feed the microorganisms in the soil. The plant is producing sugars for its own growth and cell division, and so it produces more leaves and stems and roots. And at the same time, it's releasing those through root exudates into the soil. Then the microbes are feeding off of that. In turn, the microorganisms are digesting minerals in the soil and feeding the plant. It's a symbiotic relationship. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. They're working in conjunction with each other. We're not growing a plant in a vacuum. It, it's a part of the ecosystem as part of the environment. You have to have all these things happening going on at the same time to have a healthy plant. If you had a tablespoon or even a handful of soil, are you just talking about a few microorganisms or how many are you talking about? You know, I would really like to have a powerful microscope so I could I could see this for myself. I've seen slides and I've heard people talk, but scientists say that in good garden soil, there are more living organisms, meaning microorganisms in that handful of soil than there are people who populate the globe at this time. There are over 7 billion microorganisms could be in a handful of good garden soil. Wow. So that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah. Now, you've got better microorganisms when you've got better soil structure, right? Yeah, because it's creating a better environment. If the structure is like your house, you have rooms in your house and you have doors for oxygen to get in, just like you have ways to get into your house. So the, the structure is like the house. It's like the building. You want lots of different size particles in the soil. You don't want everything to be real fine or real coarse. You want a lot of different size particles and they stack together. Then they tend to leave voids between those. If you look at it on a small scale, there's room in there for air to get into the soil. There's room in there for free water to get into the soil and percolate. When you do have a rain event or you water your plants, the soil is actually soaking it up. It's not running off. Structure comes from a lot of different things. You may have earthworms in there making channels going down into the soil. You may have uh, your roots are penetrating through the soil and, and they're leaving channels from one crop to the next. They're opening up little pores in the soil. Microorganisms themselves are secreting uh, substances that cause a lot of the little fine particles to aggregate together and form bigger particles. Left without doing a lot of tilling, your microorganisms will benefit the soil structure. So what you're wanting is a sponge, if you think about it that way. And if you look down into a sponge, you'd have little channels and holes and pore spaces all through it. And that's what you want that soil to be. You want it to be a sponge, not a hard pan and not a sieve where everything just rushes right through. But you want it to be a sponge where it absorbs air and water. All right. What is your secret to making the soil a sponge? We don't till the soil as much as we used to. Growing up, we had a farm, and that's how you started every season. Whatever crop we were growing, you started tilling. On top of the soil, it looks fine and fluffy and looks like, oh, that's the best environment for plants. There are times when you do need to till. I'm not saying that you never till the soil. 
if you continuously till the soil over and over again, say, for instance, in a vegetable garden, if you get it all broke up, tilled all up, and then you plant your crop, and then you come through between the rows, maybe you till or cultivate in between the rows, you're constantly stirring that soil up and moving it around. You're breaking up the soil structure, and you're usually making those particles finer and finer, especially with a tiller will do that. It just makes it into a powder, so you're destroying your structure so that after a few months, after it's been tilled, it's compacted and hard again and can even crust over. You don't have a sponge anymore. You have more of a crust over the soil. Tilling the soil less will aid in having better soil structure. In the beginning, we start and we do till and we do make more or less permanent beds. Then we may add compost to the top of that bed to plant into or we will mulch over the top of that bed. All those things add to keeping the soil structure. Make your initial beds. Maybe you're growing a crop like potatoes that have to be dug. So you're going to disturb the soil from time to time. We kind of get locked into this, got to till every time we, we change crops and every time there's weeds, we've got to till. And so that constant tilling over and over again can really destroy the soil. There's times when I thought that all insects were bad. Would you explain the error of my thinking? <laughs> Only about, and I forget what the exact percentage is, but it's less than 3% of the species of insects in the world are actually harmful to plants. The rest of them are eating dead material like a fallen log or leaves on the ground, so they're eating organic material. Another part of insects are eating pollen and nectar, so they're going to the flowers, and that's what they're living off of. And another portion of them are living off other insects. So if 97% of all insect species in the world are either benign or helpful to plants, and only 3% of the species in the world are actually harmful or eating our plants, then my advice is to bring more bugs into your garden. It's sort of the same thing in our thinking about microbes. If we build up the higher populations of microbes, we're going to have a lot more good guys than we have bad. You have the good actors and the bad actors. And if you really produce a lot of the good bugs and by bringing in flowers to the garden that have nectar and pollen, you're going to attract more insects to the garden. If 97% of them are good, then overall you're going to keep the bad bugs in check. It's our thinking that we can hit Mother Nature over the head with a sledgehammer to beat her into submission. If you go in there and you use the terminology of nuking everything, and we're just going to get rid of all the insects, and we're just going to have a sterile environment, that'll work for short periods of time. You're going to have to usually go back and do it again. So you get locked into this cycle of constantly having to spray something to kill bugs all the time. For whatever reason, the bad insects seem to show up first and they come back and then they'll also build up resistance. If you kill off 98% of them, 2% survive that chemical that you put on them, then the next generation is going to have some resistance to that chemical. We're locked into this thing where we're constantly having to change chemicals all the time to be able to kill the next generation of insects that we're trying to control. There are times in an organic garden when it's necessary to use organic remedies when the bad bugs get out of hand. If you can invite more insects to the garden through planting flowering plants, especially native plants and open pollinated varieties that these insects evolve with, then you're going to increase the number of good players in the environment and they're going to keep a lot of the bad insects at bay. 
There may not be a total elimination of bad insects, but you'll have a lower threshold that you can live with that will uh, be less insect damage on your plants. So in a sense, you're also farming insects with the flowers that you bring in. Yeah, you are. You're trying to encourage a diversity in biological system and organic gardening. That's your goal. Nature really performs at its best when it has a large diversity of species, of microorganisms and plant life, soil life, and insects. If you're trying to select a flower, what type of flowers would you want to lean toward in your raising of flowers? We plant annual flowers from seed. A lot of times we call them hedgerows. So we may have every 50 to 100 yards or so, we may have a row of hedge going out there where we've planted native flowers. Things that were here before Columbus arrived would be a good way to explain that. There's a Native Plant Society of Georgia and you can find this list of lists of those kind of plants that you can do. On the annual plants from seed, we do a lot of flowers that are like wildflowers. And then one that's not necessarily a wildflower, but we have found really effective is sweet alyssum because it blooms over a long period of time. You don't want all your flowers blooming one month and then next month you don't have anything because you've got to provide something in bloom as much of the year as possible. You won't have a lot of blooms in dead of winter. As much of the year as possible, you try to keep something flowering, something blooming. The other thing that we found that is really attracts a lot of beneficials are the herbs. The parsley and basil, a lot of the fennels, dill, all of those, when they flower, they really attract a lot of beneficial insects. We think about the honeybee as being a good pollinator. He's sort of the star, you know, mm-hmm. he's icon everybody thinks about when they think about we don't want to hurt the bees and all, but there's so many others and some of them are just no bigger than a gnat. You're in the garden and some little speck goes by your eye flying through the air and you have no idea what it is. It's all the unseen things a lot of times that are affecting our gardens that we don't even know what's going on. A lot of these beneficial insects are tiny. They're really small. They're not as big as a honeybee. And they can't crawl down into a deep throat of a flower. They need to have a a flower that has more of a canopy on it where they can just walk across the top and collect their nectar or or pollen there. The dill flower, it has kind of an umbrella-shaped bloom. Insect can light on that, and then he can crawl from a little floret to a little floret and collect all of his food there from the pollen and the nectar. Whereas flowers that are some of the new hybrid types that maybe have double flowers, it's harder for them to collect nectar out of. We even have a lot of flowers that where they've bred them to not have as much pollen. One of the sunflowers has been bred so it won't have pollen so that it doesn't stain tablecloth when you bring it in as a cut flower. The older flowers and the native flowers and the herbs, those tend to be some of the better flowers to bring into your garden. Plant those not in a monoculture, but in a diversity. So a lot of different kinds, not just one kind and things that bloom throughout the year, not just in one month. Any of these flowers used as cut flowers or are they just primarily as attraction for insects? On our farm, we do use some of them as cut flowers from time to time because some of them are very prolific. So they'll have enough flowers there that we can use for cut flowers as well as leaving them for the insects. Our primary goal when we're planting these flowers in the garden is to attract beneficial insects. Yeah. So we're not planting them, looking at them as a cash crop. That would be what you would do in a home garden. You'd just be planting them there and you would be enjoying them for their beauty out in the garden, not necessarily. And you may cut a few from time to time. Some of them will make cut flowers. But your uh, goal is to have them there for beneficial insects. 
you don't want to spray your crops, but you use organic products. Talk about that. There are times when we may have an outbreak of aphids, for instance, in the garden. Aphids are a little plant lice, I call them. They fly around in the beginning, but then they're once they mature, they hang on to the backs of the plants. They are sucking the juice or sucking the life out of the plant. They can just explode in population real quick. Ladybugs can eat a lot of aphids maybe early in the season or at a time when you don't have a good population of ladybugs there to eat them up. And all of a sudden they explode. Well, we are still farming or we're still gardening and we don't want to lose our crops. So there comes a time when we have to make a decision if we want to spray or not. We take the approach as let's take the least invasive approach to controlling this aphid as we can. We've already done everything we can to encourage beneficial insects in the garden, but all of a sudden we've got this outbreak of aphids. And it may be only in one area. We're not going to spray the whole farm just because we found a pocket of aphids out into one row. Plant oils and soaps are some of our first go-to, and that would be like uh, there's insecticidal soap. It's just a soap that's made without detergent, so you don't want a a grease-cutting detergent that you'd wash dishes with. You want something that's a milder soap or just buy a soap that was designed to spray plants with, and it's just called insecticidal soap. What it does is it coats the insect with this soap and insects breathe through their skin. So you're suffocating that insect and you're not spraying it, you know, necessarily you go, are you going to kill a lot of beneficial insects that way because you're spraying it right on the aphid. And if later on uh, another beneficial insect comes in or whatever, they're not going to have it all over their back. So they're, they're okay. The other oil we use a lot of times is called neem oil, and neem is, comes from a plant, uh, the neem tree. It's grown in the tropics. You would take the oil from the neem seed, just like you would oil from an olive tree, and they cold press it. And then this neem is, not only does it coat the insect to suffocate it, but it has properties that repel insects. It has properties that cause the insects to stop feeding. Those are, they're not natural poisons, but they are used in organic production to control insects. The other thing that we use in our biological controls are things that contain a different bacteria. One of them would be called uh, BT or Bacillus thuringiensis. BT is the abbreviation for it. This only affects caterpillars. So your little cabbage looper, you know, little inchworm that comes in, eats holes in your cabbage leaves. You can mm-hmm. spray that and it only affects the caterpillar. So a honeybee or, or some other parasitic wasp or something that's around is not going to be affected by that. A small effect on beneficial insects and it does affect the target pest you're trying to get rid of. And there's several more that are following that same category, either biological controls that are made from bacterias or fungi that only affect certain insects. Insects, plant oils, or soaps that you can use for that. You can also buy parasitic insects that parasitize the target insect you're trying to get rid of. There's a parasitic wasp. It's not the wasp that stings us. It's not the big red wasp. In fact, this is just a little tiny wasp, no bigger than a gnat. She comes in and she actually punches a hole in the back of an aphid and lays her egg under the skin of the aphid. As that egg hatches, it eats the aphid from the inside out. You can buy those from companies that produce beneficial insects and spread them out in your garden. If you're on the front end of trying to build up good populations of beneficial insects, that's that's the way to do it. So you could either buy beneficial insects and bring them in or use some plant oils, or you can use the uh, biological controls like the BT. 
I think you've got a plot for a movie here called Insect Wars. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) There is a whole drama going on right before our eyes and under our feet every day that we don't notice. It's kind of a horror show with all these insects that are parasitizing caterpillars and aphids and things like that. And so there's there's a whole drama going on that uh, we're not even aware of. Somebody needs to put that together. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's money to be made there. There could be, could be. I'm thinking back about the soil and you're talking about not tilling the soil and you see all these weeds there. And I know you're saying, well, we don't want to till those up all the time because we will pulverize the soil. We'll turn it into powder. It will crust over. And and I guess that creates possibly erosion or you don't get water infiltration. How do you handle controlling weeds? We smother them. That's our go-to, and we do it several different ways. So I would say in the beginning, say you're starting out and you've got a weed patch or a lawn or if you're wanting to put a garden there, is to get a tarp, something that the sunlight cannot go through. We've all seen this if we went out in the see a board or a rock or something in the garden and or out in the landscape somewhere and we turn it over and it's bare underneath it. It's because you've cut the sunlight out. Eventually, it's going to die. Even a weed, it just takes a little longer. It's not as quick as tilling is, but if you can plan ahead and put tarps out over the top of that, you can smother the weeds out. On larger scale, a lot of farmers, what we're doing is we're planting cover crops. In the wintertime, we plant oats and rye, cereal crops, clover and vetch and things like that. And all those crops germinate really quick and they'll smother the weeds out. What you'll be left with is less weeds in your garden because you've grown this cover crop through the season when you're not growing vegetables, either winter or sometimes in the summer. There's different types of those crops that grow in the summer too. Mulch is the other thing. Once we get a plant in the ground and not a seed particularly, but say a transplant, plant like a tomato, pepper, something like that. Then we bring in shredded leaves and we pile those pretty thick all around that tomato plant. And then the leaves smother out the weed seeds. Just like we talk about how important it is for our vegetables to have sunlight in order to make photosynthesis and to produce and grow, weeds are the same way. Weeds and grasses have to have that sun. So if you smother them by putting something over the top, either a fast-growing crop, tarpaulin, shredded leaves, whatever is into the scale that you're gardening, you know, all that's kind of match up. You're not going to tarp a 500-acre uh, cornfield. We're using cover crops in that case. Depends on your scale of what you're doing, but tarps were good for small vegetable gardens. What is mostly recommended is silage tarp. It's what the farmers use to cover their silage bins with to keep water off of them. White on one side and black on the other. And some uh, garden supply places now begin to sell these. The other thing we use is a real heavy geotex fabric that's woven. As long as you cannot see daylight through it, then it'll work. It doesn't have to be porous. You can use plastic where it doesn't let uh, water through, but it has to be thick enough and heavy enough for the sunlight can't get through it. I've seen a technique where they use clear plastic over a bed. That's a little bit different, but it's used for weed control also, but that's called solarization. And that's where you're letting the light through and you're trying to build up heat underneath that plastic covering. 
you're sterilizing the first inch or so of soil on top there through solarization. And maybe it was because you had a bad disease problem there or a bad weed problem. You're trying to cure some of that. You'd usually do that in the summer months. That is a strategy you can use. We don't use that as much as we do the opposite of that, which is instead of solarization, it's called oculation, which is the elimination of sunlight. It gets warm under that tarp, but it doesn't get as hot as it would be if you let the sunlight through. It will also cause, even in the dark, be warm enough under there in the blacktop tarp to cause some weed seeds in the first inch of soil to germinate. And because they germinate and they can't find any light, they immediately turn yellow and die. You're eliminating a lot of the weed seed bank that's up close to the top of the ground. And as long as when you take that tarp off, you don't disturb the soil and bring up more weed seeds, you'll have less weeds in the beginning. Eventually, some of those ones down deeper will start to grow, but your crops can get ahead of them by then. Now, what is creating a stale seed bed? We're trying to get as many weed seeds to germinate underneath that black tarp or black landscape fabric that will not disturbing the soil or not bringing up any more weed seeds after that. And so it's kind of a stale seed bed. The only thing we're going to do is run a little push seeder or something. We may disturb it slightly, just some seed in the ground, but we're not going to till there. The other strategy that we've used to create a stale seed bed, if we don't have time to let the tarp stay on for very long, is we'll get ready to plant our next crop, maybe go through and take off any weeds that are right on the surface. So we're just taking the top quarter inch or so and just kind of scraping off whatever's there water it in and we wait to see what weed seeds are going to germinate. You wait about a week or 10 days and you may get a little flush of weeds. And at that time, you can use a flame weeder, which is basically just propane off of a grill tank when you're grilling out in the backyard and it's run into a, a flame torch. Torch, yeah. No, not a flamethrower, but a torch. <laughs> I was wanting to say flamethrower too. <laughs> yeah, yeah turn it down so that you're not producing a huge fire. You're just producing heat and you run over that bed with that uh, heated torch enough that you kill off any of those little weed seeds that germinate. And we're not talking about three foot tall grass or anything close to that. We're talking about things that just have germinated that may just have hairs coming up if it's grass or if it's a broadleaf weed, it may have the cotyledons, so the two little seed leaves coming out of the ground and just a little bit of heat will just desiccate those. They'll just dry up and you'll kill them. And because you're not going to till that again, you're just going to plant seeds in there. You've created a first little crop of weed seeds to germinate, killed them off. And so it's going to take longer for the next set of weeds that are down deeper in the soil to come up. The idea is you're on a stale bed. Your seeds are going to outgrow the weeds and get ahead of them and shade them out. How do you know what plant to plant and when? And everywhere in the country is different. Where I live, you know, here in the southeast, Zone 7B in Georgia, we can garden year-round, but we can't grow tomatoes in dead of winter, not without a greenhouse and a whole lot of extra gas to heat it. If we're just growing with naturally with the seasons, then we want to pay attention to plants and what time of year they grow the best. We divide ours up into cool season plants and warm season plants. In Georgia, we have basically two times a year where we can grow cool season, and that's in spring and fall. And then in the summertime, we can grow warm season plants, tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, things like that. We kind of divide those up. And the cool season plants tend to be brassica family, which is cabbage and collard and broccoli and cauliflower. All those are in the same family. 
they'll take a little bit of cold weather. They'll take a little light frost and, and they'll take the cooler soil temperatures and actually do pretty well. They cannot produce well as it gets into the heat of the summer. When we get into the 90s on a regular basis, they're just not going to do as well. So we put those in the ground early March, and we usually try to use varieties that will mature within two months, 60 days. So we're looking for a broccoli that has in the seed catalog, when you look at it, it'll say dates to maturity, which means from the time you plant the plant in the ground to the time you can harvest the head of broccoli is 60 days. Put it in 1st of March. We've got March and April. So by 1st of May, we're harvesting. It's getting warm in May, but it's usually not as high as it is in June. We're getting our broccoli planted and harvested, done by the time the real hot weather gets here. A lot of your greens like collards, kale, spinach, and lettuce, and all the leafy greens that you grow, they usually grow better in the cooler months of the year. So if we're working along with nature or trying to make that plant, again, as healthy as it can be, we're going to plant it at a time of year when we think it's going to be the best shot of producing a good crop. We get fooled sometimes. We get a, a hard late freeze or we get an early warm up. Weather can always play havoc. We have to go by historical data and when things are usually happening and it may vary from year to year. So we can plant a cool season crops in March and harvest them in May. Fall, we actually have to plant while it's still hot in late August, early September, but then those crops mature when it gets cool in October, November. We can grow another crop of cool season plants in the fall of the year. And we can actually grow some of those on into the winter months. Collards, kale, spinach will stand up to a uh, pretty hard freezes if they're acclimated the fall of the year. If it gets cold gradually, they'll keep producing on into the winter months. Carrots is another crop we grow in the fall of the year. And then we harvest those out of the ground all through the winter month because they've kind of stopped growing as we get into December and January. They're storing really in the ground and you just pull them as you need them. Now, if you lived in Ohio or Michigan, probably couldn't do that. Here in the Southeast, we can plant carrot seeds in September, October, and then we can harvest those carrots all through the winter months as uh, storage carrots. Knowing about your crops and when the best time to plant them and when they grow the best is really a key to any kind of gardening, whether you garden organically or not, but especially if you garden organically because you're trying to make that plant healthy. If we jump the gun on planting our summer crops like tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, beans, corn, all those, and we try to get them in too early, the soil temperatures are too low, uh, we're having frost on into sometimes the 1st of April. If we get in there too quick, then we can do more damage to the plant and then that opens it up for being weak and a weak plant's more attractive to insects and diseases timing is a big part of it and it just comes with talking with other gardeners in your area experience and just because it's warm the second week in march we had 80 degrees here the other day but I'm not planting my tomatoes yet because I know from historical data that we're likely to have another freeze between 9 and the 1st of April. Even if we don't have a freeze, we're going to have temperatures back down in the low 30s, which are not going to be conducive for growing some of these warm season crops. Getting them planted at the right time in the right season is, makes a big difference. What can we do to minimize diseases in the vegetable garden? 
just like with insects, we're going to grow a healthy plant to start with. There are certain diseases that will attack our plants. We have a terrible problem in the southeast with a beta blight uh, because we have such humid days all through the summer. The leaf will stay wet. And when your leaves on your plants are constantly moist or have water sitting on them, it's an invitation for fungus and bacteria to sporulate and to grow. Anything we can do to minimize that is good as far as not watering your plants overhead. If you're growing a plant that's susceptible to powdery mildew or the tomato blight that tomatoes get summertime or anything that's a leaf disease, usually it's spread through overhead watering and water splashing. And we can't do much about rain if we're growing outside and we can't do much about the humidity just part of life of wherever you live is that's going to be. But we don't want to aggravate that by watering overhead and wetting the leaves more. We use a lot of drip irrigation, which means that we're putting the water just in a slow, steady drip right at the base of the plant through drip tape or drip emitters underneath the soil slightly or right at soil level. And they're just dripping out on the roots of the plants instead of spraying water all over the top. That's one thing. Some of the remedies that we use to counteract the diseases that we can get on our vegetables is we use copper sometimes, and that is an organic control. Be careful not to use too much because if you overdo it, you can get in the soil and you can build up copper toxicities in the soil. The other thing we use is biological controls, and there's a, uh, a product called Serenade that is actually a bacteria, and it colonizes the leaf with good bacteria so that there's no room for some of the botrytis or powdery mildew and things like that to grow there. That's a biological control that we use, and there are others besides Serenade, but that's one we use. There are things like potassium bicarbonate, which is kind of like sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda, but this is made from potassium, which is a natural mineral because it raises the pH. A leaf, when you spray it on, inhibits the growth of fungus and bacteria. So it kind of works sort of like the copper does, but we'll alternate those so we're not spraying copper all the time. We're trying to colonize the leaf with a lot of good bacteria, or if it starts to get out of control, then we use something like the copper where we just are trying to get rid of everything to hit the reset button and restart. We really have a lot of rainy thunderstorms in the afternoon and uh, high humidity in the morning. You walk out your door and you go on and your shoes are wet. First time you walk through the lawn for all that dew or wetness on the leaf of the grass, the same things happen. A vegetable garden and those leaves are staying wet and Sometimes if you have as much as eight or 10 hours overnight with moisture on that leaf, then some of your funguses will sporulate or reproduce under that condition. That's what causes the spread of the disease. There comes a point we have just accepted with our tomatoes that they're not going to live forever. If we can plant them and plant several succession crops and we can get good harvest of tomatoes, eventually they may succumb to that disease. And a lot of it just has to do with the area of the country that we live in and our high humidity minute to hear and we try to get the best crop we can out of it and then we just accept that it's over with it's time to move on to the next thing we're not going to have perfection so we just try to produce the best plant and the best crop we can You've got a garden and you don't have a drip emitters or anything like that. You're left with a watering can or a watering wand that just showers of water. When is the best time of the day to actually water the plant? Early in the morning is the best time and you can still direct that water to the ground. 
and not stand over it with a watering wand or whatever at the top of the plant, but direct it toward the root where you're watering with a watering can or shower head at the end of a garden hose. Just try not to wet the leaves as much as that's possible. There is much more valuable conversation after this brief break. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. How do you test your soil? We do a couple of different ways. We use the state lab for us, the University of Georgia. We send things off. They give us some really good information on soil tests. One is pH. That's where the soil is either acid or alkaline. In our part of the world, clay soils here are usually low pH or acid. We have to add limestone to bring that up. What you're doing there is your microbial life lives better when it's closer to neutral. Neutral on the pH scale would be 7, 1 being being the most acid, 14 being the most alkaline, and 7 being neutral in the middle. We want to be just just below 7, like 6.5, and that's when microbial life is the best. That's when a lot of your minerals will dissolve easier and absorb by the plant easier. We want a good pH, so a soil test will tell you that. It'll also tell you the amount of phosphorus, potassium, and you can get different tests to tell you even the micronutrients in the soil and where you're at on those. That is a good indicator. We can go to some private labs and get even more detail. If you want to know what your organic matter content is, you can pay a little extra to get that done and you can... It's surprising to know that the percentage of organic matter in the soil is usually somewhere around 3 or 4%. If you have 5% soil organic matter, you're considered to have good organic matter in your soil. So it doesn't sound like a big amount percentage-wise by volume, that is. You're striving for a higher percentage of organic matter in the soil, and that's done through adding compost and also from growing cover crops and adding mulches to the soil like shredded leaves and things like that, anything that will will add organic matter back in the soil. You can get that from a soil test. It's going to tell you whether or not your minerals are high or low. You may need to add more or less phosphorus, potassium, that sort of thing. Usually you don't do a nitrogen test because nitrogen is fleeting. It's quickly changing all the time. Nitrogen is the most important or used by the plant in the biggest abundance in soils. Usually it's a given that you're going to have to add some nitrogen. And organically, you would use things that have nitrogen in them naturally, like blood meal, feather meal, uh, alfalfa meal, or something like that that would have nitrogen in it. Or what we do on the farms, we try to grow our nitrogen, growing legumes in the crop before it. Things like clover and vetch in the wintertime and then peas or sun hemp or different things like that in the summertime will grow. Those are legumes and a legume has the ability to fix nitrogen out of the air where other plants can't do that. Through a biological process in the soil, clover plant, for instance, will absorb nitrogen and hold nitrogen there in the soil and it can be released to the next crop after that. Soil test isn't really going to tell you that, but that's just a given that you're going to need nitrogen every time that you're growing vegetables. So those things add it naturally without having to buy it in a bag. 
I think the soil test with university system is about eight bucks. You take a random sampling, which means that if you have a vegetable garden that's 20 by 30 or whatever size it is, or maybe it's just a four by eight bed, whatever, you don't take the soil from one spot. You do a random sampling. So you go down four or five inches deep, take a profile of that soil top to bottom, and you get it from several different spots all over the same area. If you've got two different areas that are a lot different, been treated different, you may have to take two samples. But usually people can get by with just one sample that's taken from a lot of different spots, mixed all together, and that, that becomes one random sampling of your garden. You send that off to the university. They send you back a report. Usually tell them what you're growing. You can be specific if you're just growing peppers or whatever, but if you just say, you can say vegetable garden, and they'll tell you how to adjust for your pH. They don't always give you organic equivalents of what you got to put in there, but it tells you how many pounds and actual phosphorus, potassium, or trace minerals and all that you need, or how much lime you'll need. And you can convert that to organic sources to supply that rather than chemical sources. It gives you a good start, and you don't have to do it every year. You do it every three years, and you keep a record of it. You can kind of look back and see if you're trending in a certain direction or not. We were using pelletized chicken manure as our fertilizer for a while. It's fairly high in phosphorus. Through a soil test, we found out that we were building up too much phosphorus in the soil, so we had to adjust our organic fertilizer to buy something that had less phosphorus in it. So the manure, helpful information like that, see where you're trending in your soil so that you can adjust and use different things. How do you deal with those cover crops? And I know we talked about tarping, but you know, I think some of these cover crops grow, grow rather tall. And how do you deal with that? Do you go in with a lawnmower or a weed eater and cut them down and then tarp it after that? Yep, that's it. That's what you do. You go in there and you scalp them off. It takes planning because you can't do this and plant the same day. You cut them all the way to the ground, weed eat, lawnmower, whatever you got available to you. Then you scalp that off right at the ground, and then you tarp it, then what you're doing is you're killing that cover crop. You're terminating it because it could be a weed as if it was left. All you did is mow it down and try to plant in that. From mowing it, a lot of it will regrow. Bigger farms actually using rye and they're crimping it, which means they have a big roller that rolls it down and crimps the stem and that kills it. Then they're planting seeds through it the same day. It was a technique that was pioneered by Rodell Institute, the folks that brought us Organic Gardening Magazine. They have several test farms all over the U.S. In fact, they just have started one here in Georgia, over near Serenby, south of Atlanta. We're looking for good things to come out of that. Some research will help us here in the southeast. Their main farm is Pennsylvania. They pioneered this roller crimper. This is for farms with hundreds of thousands of acres. They're growing corn and soybeans, typical commodity crop. A lot of those farms that were growing, a lot of these going no-till, they were using glyphosate to kill off or terminate the cover crop at the end. So they were trying to come up with a way to do that without using chemical and they come up with a roller crimper so it's a big drum and if you can envision it it has blades on the outside of that drum and the weight of the drum as it rolls over the cover crop usually they're using rye rye not rye grass but cereal rye and those blades are, are crimping or busting the stem as it lays it down and that actually kills it better than cutting it clean cut there it puts back up from the root and timing is also important when they do that they do it in the seed stage so it plants gone to seed so it's about to complete this life cycle anyway. They're rolling it down or crimping it down at that point and they don't get a lot of regrowth. They have specialized planters that follow the track 
behind it with the tractor and sow the corn, soybean, can be other things too. There are techniques being developed for using this on big scale as well as small scale. In our home gardens, mow it, cut it with a weed eater. We got some time, we put a tarp over it, let it that terminate or kill the cover crop, and then we take the tarp off and then we're ready to plant. We also need to mulch over the top of that so we're sure that we're smothering out weed seeds that'll germinate after that or, or the cover crop that's coming back up. So we still have to cover that soil with something even after the crops in the ground. What is your earliest garden memory? My grandmother kind of planted the seed in me. She had a little farmhouse and it was on the same piece of property I live right now. The house is not there anymore. We're on the same piece of property. And she had a port and she used to enclose that porch in plastic. Me and my dad would get out there and we would put plastic up around her screened in porch and she would use that as her greenhouse and got plenty of sun and she would bring her flowers in from the yard and overwinter geraniums in there and other things. And then she would start all of our garden plants there on that porch that was closed in. She'd put a little electric heater out there to keep them warm. And, and I remember planting tomato seeds, pepper seeds, and things that we were growing for our home garden. So I always say that she planted the seed in me that led to a passion for loving plants all my life. Tell us about your journey from that point on through becoming a local organic farmer. I started doing that when I was a kid in my preteen times. And then as I got to be a teenager, I started growing more things and rooting stuff on my own. My dad helped me build a uh, small greenhouse when I was still in high school. I was selling garden plants, flowers, and vegetables to my neighbors by that little greenhouse. I graduated from high school, went on to study horticulture at Abraham Baldwin Ag School down in Tifton, Georgia. That brought about an introduction to a lot of ornamentals and then for a while, that's what I was doing, was growing ornamental plants. Went to work for Pike Nurseries in Atlanta, worked there for two or three years, and then started a company called Southern Perennial Growers. We grew a lot of perennial ornamental plants and some annuals and all too as well. Got married all during that time and raised a family and had four sons that grew up in the nursery business. And we were we had pretty large wholesale nursery, or large by my standards anyway, not not large by some standards. But uh, we grew and sold plants all over the southeast and on perennials. And then because our county where I live was growing so we opened up a retail garden center called Country Gardens Nursery and Country Gardens sold the same things that we were growing there at the wholesale nursery we sold it to the public that went on for years and the whole time that we're growing plants and selling plants and all we, we've always had a vegetable garden so when I grew up my dad planted a big vegetable garden my grandmother and mother and all worked in it we picked and canned and we produced a lot of our own food we didn't I mean, we bought things at the grocery store of course a lot of what we ate came out of the garden and out of the farm, the animals, you know. And then we continued doing that through my married life. We always had a, had a garden and grew a lot of our vegetables and all. I've been a gardener for most of my life. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed doing that. After about 30 years, we finally closed the ornamental nursery and we started growing just vegetables so about 10 years ago. We'd already kind of transitioned into doing more organic at that time. I was learning more about how to be a successful organic gardener, learning about the soils and learning about controlling insects. We started a, a small CSA, stands for Community Supported Agriculture, where people actually buy subscriptions 
option to get a bag of fresh vegetables every week. And we started out with like 25 people. Over the last 10 years, that's grown to about 150 people. Plus, we sell to the public on weekends, on Friday and Saturdays here at our little farm stand. And then I had a son who stayed in the farming. He produces the livestock. And so I told him, you grow everything that jumps out of the fence and I'll grow everything that has roots on it. And so he has beef and pork and chicken, eggs and milk. <laughs> so he's got the whole gambit there of, uh, of livestock. He is actually on my wife's, on Judy's family's farm. And that's where he has all the animals. And he leases another, I think it's close to 150 acres or so in the county here where he moves cows around from different farms because everything is grass-fed. You have to have plenty of grass available. So one farm is starting to get low on grass. He'll load everything up the trailer and move to another farm and graze it a while. He does that full-time, and we sell it all under the name Country Gardens Farm at our farm stand here where we live on uh, Highway 154 near Noonan. You're on your family farm, what, that went back to the 1940s? That's right. My grandfather moved here from not very far away, but he was, they were living in Riverdale and they moved here in 1940 and bought this land. And then he farmed. He was actually a vegetable farmer. He grew at that time. They called them truck farmers. That was somebody who grew vegetables and loaded all on the truck, took it to the market in Atlanta and sold it off the back of his truck in Atlanta. He and my grandmother did that. And then after my dad was in World War II, married my mom for a short time. They lived in Atlanta, and then they moved back here to the farm when I was born. And so this is the only place I've ever known to live. My dad farmed as well. His main thing was hogs and cattle and also row crops of corn to feed the hogs. So he was, he was growing row crops and corn. So we were leasing mm-hmm. land and growing that. And he at one time we were growing 500 acres of corn and soybeans and had up to several hundred pigs and 50, 60 cows. And he Quite was doing that. Yeah, yeah, doing that. And he was working with a for Ford Motor Company in Hateful and, and farming on the side. He always said he had to have another job to help support the farm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of sad in a way when you think about it, because there, there are a lot of folk who want to farm and like to farm, and they, they're having to work a second job to do that. And, and I think now what we're trying to do, what we're selling, not uh, he was selling everything as a commodity crop. He was growing pigs, and then you take them to the market, and whatever the price was that day, that's mm-hmm. what you got. And what my son does now with his hogs is he's taking them to the processor and making pork chops and sausage out of them and then selling it by the pound directly Mm -hmm. to the customer. He can set his price a little different because he's growing a higher quality meat using organic methods and that sort of thing. There's no middleman in there. So he's selling straight farm to table, you might say. That affords a farmer a little better living than than a commodity crop. And the only way you'll make it grow in in the commodity business where you're selling on open market, so to speak, and you're going to take whatever's price that day is to try to have big volumes, try to make up for it. But that doesn't always work either. If you're selling at a loss, doesn't matter how big your volume is, <laughs> you're losing money. <laughs> How's that saying go? You lose a little bit on every plant and you make it up in volume? That's right. <laughs> Doesn't work. <laughs> Doesn't work. Uh-uh. No, I have testimony to that. In your professional career, who has 
been your biggest influencer? Oh, I don't know. There's been a lot of people over the time. I was involved in the nursery industry real heavily in my early time professional career. Mm. And there were a lot of folks during that time that that influenced me, a lot of businessmen uh, that I looked up to, and a lot of growers, people who were plant advocates and and plant enthusiasts. And and I don't know of any one person, but a lot lot of the folks in the nursery industry I look up to. I had several folks here that were local farmers that I always looked up to. My dad, you know, farmed and he helped me a lot. And grandmother, there were uh, two or three neighbors, good farmers, good gardeners that knew how to grow things. And Mr. Sullivan that was down the road from me here. He was really a good gardener. He, he not necessarily was an organic gardener, but he knew what plants needed and knew how to take care of the soil and knew how to plant things at the right time. I listened to a lot of them. And I think anybody who is a gardener, you don't come to that by your own knowledge all the time. You can read books and watch YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> and I still do that. Talking to somebody who's doing it and being witness to what they're doing, whether it be through garden clubs or through organizations or whatever, that's the way to learn. Be a doer and be an observer of people who are doers. <laughs> Talking about learning, what is your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, I've killed lots of plants. <laughs> I've, made, I've made lots of stuff. Trying to work all this out with no-till right. has been a challenge because there's not a lot of people doing it. Kind of a new thing. That's been a challenge is knowing how to control the weeds and how to get a crop in the ground without going out there and tilling everything. And I hadn't always done that. This is something new that I've worked into in the last few years. And we've had a lot of weedy crops in between. That's the problem. We've learned to overcome it and perfect our techniques so we don't always have that. There's a state organization that I belong to called Georgia Organics, and it is a group of farmers, but also people who are just interested in organic gardening or just want to see the organic movement spread. We remember that. That's been an influence in our lives and helped us, but not make too many mistakes. I've killed a lot of plants, and I've had some weedy gardens, and if you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. How do you see these organic methods transferring over to the ornamental landscaping? You know, a plant is a plant. Whether you're growing it for something beautiful to look at or you're growing it for something to pick something to eat from it. Mm-hmm. Plants have basic needs. Some are different than others. Some grow in less sun, more sun, different times of the year. There are some differences. Basically, what you're trying to do is produce a healthy plant. Like we talked about in the very beginning, is paying attention to the soil. With ornamentals, that's really important. When you're planting permanent plants, trees, shrubs, perennials, things that are going to be in the ground, yeah, you may till the soil or you may disturb the soil in the beginning to get them established. And that's certainly a good method to get going. Mulching after that, that plant or tree is going to stay there and it's going to be there for years to come, hopefully. While you are tilling or you are breaking the ground up, improve the soil at that point. I've never come to a situation where I didn't think where there's sandy soil or where you live where there's clay soil, adding more organic matter to the soil wasn't a good thing. Organic matter just means that something that was once living that's now dead and decaying to be in a state where it's not just halfway there, but it's already compost, you know, gone through the whole process. It looks like soil Mm -hmm. and it in big areas, ornamentals and but you can plant annual crops, annual flowers, pansies, begonias, petunias, whatever, by piling layers of organic matter on top of the soil and planting into that. You don't necessarily have to dig to plant annual crops of flowers every year. You can add to the top of the soil and plant up on top. 
there was a book written by a lady named Ruth Strout, gosh, back in the 60s or 50s. I don't know in a while. She was a contributor to Organic Gardening Magazine. She wrote several books. And her thing was she had moved out to the country and she did not have a tractor or a plow or tiller. And she was dependent upon a neighbor to come and get her garden ready every year. He would do it on his own sweet time. Whenever he got through with his garden or whatever he was doing, then he might come, you know, help Ruth out. And she got tired of waiting. (laughs) So she said, well, I'm just going to go with what I got. So she found rotten hay on her farm and she found cow manure and she found rotted leaves and she found all this organic matter and she just piled it up in her garden spot and then she planted it and it worked, (laughs) you know. She wrote those books 50, 60 years ago, and that method, that's what led to some of the methods that we're using today. Then there was a lady years later that wrote a book called Lasagna Gardening, and it wasn't a garden that you produced lasagna in. It was a garden that you layered with types of organic materials, and then you planted into it. Same idea that Ruth Strout had. We've taught classes here at the farm on lasagna gardening. Put a layer of wood chips and a layer of leaves. And a layer of grass clippings and a layer of food scraps and you just layer, layer, layer all the way up till you get up maybe 10, 12 inches high or higher and then you cap it off on the top with a layer of finished compost and you plant your seed in it the same day. Sometimes better to let it age for months, but if you don't have time, you can do it the same day. All the worms and the microorganisms just eat all that up. What you've done is just built a big compost pile and you planted on top of it and it works, does a good job. Those are the kind of things that have evolved over the years and people are writing about, been writing about for years. The farm, your growing methods follow organic standards Mm -hmm. and you're certified under a program called Certified Naturally Grown. Right. How does that work? Certified Organic is a USDA certification and it's good for people who are selling third party. In other words, if I was selling to the grocery store and the consumer didn't know who I was, then that seal that the USDA puts on there says somebody has come out and inspected this farm. We know for sure that they're using organic methods. Mm-hmm. I sell directly to the public and for the most part, everybody comes here to the farm to buy directly from me. Mm-hmm. We don't see it as important to have that seal on everything we sell because they can walk over the farm. They can visit with me. I can show them what we're doing. They don't smell chemicals or they don't see us spraying chemicals on the farm. We can talk about our methods. It's a face-to-face experience, so it's not as necessary to do that. We do certify under certified natural grown, so we have some certification third party. It's run by farmers. I have a farmer come in a different farm every year who goes over all of my techniques and inputs. You know, I have what I'm buying to put in any kind of fertilizer, any kind of remedies that I use. They're looking at that and I have to keep records and show my receipts and all what I bought. They're third party uh, that does that and can't reciprocate another farmer. Like I don't go inspect somebody's farm and they come inspect mine. They frown on that. That doesn't work. (laughs) So it's like somebody comes from Carrollton over here to inspect my farm. Then I go to Douglasville and inspect somebody's farm. So we, we don't inspect each other's farm, but it's farmer run and the fees are a lot lower. And so that's why we chose to certify that way instead of by U.S. USDA. USDA is good. That's yeah. a good way. It's where you're selling like through a grocery store or a restaurant or something and the people don't know the farmer. Then that's a third party saying that it's been checked mm-hmm. out. You're building a real personal relationship with your customer. Oh, you probably yeah. know every one of your customers. I would think all 150 of them. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we see them week after week. And then, of course, we get new people coming in that just uh, want to come to some of our classes at the farm or, or want to come and buy on the weekends, which we you don't have to be a member of the CSA to come on Friday and Saturday to buy from us. You and Judy have ex- our extraordinary desire to see other people be successful with their organic gardens. And you've authored a book with a lot of help from Judy titled Seven Steps to an Organic Vegetable Garden. Tell us about the book and how to get a copy. Several years ago, we were answering the same, and still are, I guess, but we were answering the same questions over and over again. And uh, Judy said, you need to write all this down in the book <laughs> so people could have it. Just like some of the things we're talking about today, what to plant when. First step is location and soils. So all those things are in, in the book. It's not for somebody who's an expert organic grower. It's more for somebody who's maybe gardening a while and some success, or it's for somebody that's starting fresh that then never done it before. I'd say a beginner or intermediate level, people who are wanting to garden organically. Maybe they've gardened before and they don't know how to garden organically. That'd be a good resource for them. We sell it on Amazon, but for the most part, we sell it to our customers that are coming to the farm and we'll ship it free freight to anybody who wants to come to the website. We have an online store and it's available on there, $15, and you can order it there and we'll ship it to you. Or if you're coming to see us, you can come here to the farm stand and buy it from us here at the farm stand. Website is Country Gardens with an S, plural, <laughs> Country Gardens <laughs> Farm. So it's one farm, many gardens. <laughs> Country Gardens farm.com our website has a blog on it so it has information about organic growing tips and judy puts a lot of recipes there because what we found out was that people who were buying our vegetables didn't always know how to cook them they were seeing things that were not in a can or a box or processed didn't have directions written on them they wanted to know more about how to start with something fresh and how to cook at so we started doing a blog and she puts a lot of recipes in there for that we also have a facebook page called Country Gardens Farm on Facebook. It's got a lot of behind the scenes pictures in there about where we're growing crops and the animals that Joseph is, uh, my son's doing. And we post pretty regular in it several times a week. You can find out a little bit about the farm there and what's going on. We have a private group called Grow Good Food and it's for gardeners. It's a private group, meaning that you just have to ask to join and you answer three questions, which you're no right or wrong answer. It's just a, a way of making sure we're talking about gardening and not uh, religion or politics, you know. <laughs> no drama there, just gardening drama. <laughs> you can post pictures there of what you're growing. If you've got a bug you don't, can't identify, you can post a picture there and answer or somebody else in the group will answer. And I look at that pretty regular through the week. I may not answer the same day you post it, but I get to it, you know, within a day or two of looking at it. We've got about uh, 250 or so people in that gardening group and that's growing. And I think the more people would get in it and the more people that use it, you can learn a lot that way because it's other gardeners' experience. And I'm posting about what we're doing on the farm there. So you'll know when it's time to plant your broccoli plants and when it's time to plant your tomato plants because you'll see where I've posted what we're doing that week. So that's a help. We do a newsletter and that's probably the easiest way for people to find out about us and to keep up with what we're doing. We send out an email newsletter every week on Thursday afternoons. It tells you what's available at the farm. We're seasonal and it tells you what's available to sell that weekend because we're open on Friday and Saturday. So you get that on Thursday night. It tells you what's going to be available that weekend. It has an organic gardening tip in there every week and Judy puts a recipe 
in there every week. And then we list any classes that we're going to have. We've started doing more and more classes here at the farm until COVID. And then we kind of backed off a little bit, but now we're kind of getting started back again uh, on a limited basis of live classes. We like to say that we're the teaching farmers of Country Gardens Farm, teaching people how to grow, cook, and preserve good food. Teach you how to grow it, if that's what you're interested in, and teach you how to cook it. Or if you're just interested in buying it from us or a local farm somewhere and cooking it, Judy will talk about cooking and preserving. Built us a little pavilion here at the farm and have a kitchen in it and got several little garden beds around the pavilion where we can show you on a smaller scale of how to garden in your backyard, not on the scale we are in the field. How to start from scratch to make a garden bed and garden if that's what you're doing and how to keep it from getting eat up by the bugs and diseases. <laughs> yeah, I would think well worth your visit there just to see all the different style of gardens that you do have in your demonstration area. Yeah, we, we tried to do a lot of different garden beds. And I tell people, you don't always have to build a box or whatever to garden in, but it is aesthetically pleasing and it does keep things neat and tidy. So if that's what you want to do, we definitely can show you some different ways of building raised beds like that. Out in our gardens, out in the field, we're mounding soil up to make a beds with no boxes or sideboards or anything on it. So we try to present a lot of different ideas about how to garden. Thank you, Mike Cunningham, for sharing your organic vegetable gardening knowledge and expertise at today's episode number one of the Garden Question Podcast. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Be well, keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.